Eight years ago, on April 28, 2013, Grace Presbyterian Church gathered on the front lawn to dedicate this property that we had recently purchased. And it was a wonderful celebration. A number of you were there. And we planted an oak tree. Why an oak tree? Because the Bible verse for our building dedication was Isaiah 61 verse 3, where God promises to send his Messiah who will one day come and gather a people. And God said through the prophet Isaiah these words, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Listen, Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a planting of the Lord on the east end of Long Island. We are alive in Christ so that the Lord may be glorified in us and through us. Oaks of righteousness. Righteousness is central to who we are as God's planting. And listen, righteousness is beautiful. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. You see, where righteousness is lacking, there is strife, oppression, inequality. And people cry out for what? They cry out for justice. But listen, where righteousness overflows, there is, there is joy and happiness, equality, civility, and universal flourishing on earth. Grace Church, we are a planting of the Lord, oaks of righteousness, through which the east end of Long Island may come to glorify the Lord. In our text this morning, the Apostle John presses home the importance of righteousness. He shows us that God has done something marvelous for us and in us that, that causes us to be oh so different in this broken world. We have been reborn to be practitioners of righteousness. Now, is this how you see your life in Christ? Let's begin. We are in 1 John, and we're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and then we're going into chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works 
of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. Your plan for your people and for this world is beautiful. It's, it's righteousness. It's something we, we know we should have. It's something we long for in this world, but we also recognize that we're not good at righteousness. In many days, we don't even want it. And so um, help us in this hour to affirm what you affirm and to embrace what you embrace. Help us to see that in Christ Jesus, we have not only been made righteous, but we become righteous, which is a beautiful thing. Amen. Well, this sermon is titled Family Resemblance because in this passage we see that those who trust in Christ are God's children. We belong to God's family. And and since God is pure and righteous um, and our elder brother Jesus is pure and righteous and he died to make us pure and righteous, we are to pursue purity and righteousness. We've been made righteous by Christ so that we would display God's righteousness into this sad and fallen world. We are the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Now, if you recall the context of John's letter to these churches in Asia Minor, they were being led astray by Gnostic teaching that said it really doesn't matter how you live your life in the flesh, what you you do in the body. It doesn't matter if it's good or it's bad, if it's pure or not. Only the spiritual things, it's only what you think that really matters. And and certainly we live in a world like this today, do we not? It ought not surprise us because scripture says that we live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. And check this out. The sad thing is this, is that everyone who walks on this earth says that this world needs to be fixed. But no one seems to want to start with themselves. It's always somebody else who's unrighteous. It's the Republicans, it's the Democrats, it's the Black Lives Matters people, or it's the All Lives Matter people. It's always a finger pointing away at others who lack righteousness. And so here's where Christianity challenges all of that. See, when Christ comes into your life for the first time, you realize that righteousness isn't other people's problem. It's your own great problem. And so you turn to Christ, and he makes you righteous, and he brings you into a new family, God's family, where the family resemblance is what? Righteousness. That is what the Apostle John wants us to comprehend this morning. Here's the big idea, that God, by his grace, gives us a new birth into God's family. And so all who belong to God's family, there is now a a family resemblance, the resemblance of righteousness. We're going to investigate this reality under three topics. First, we're going to look at the family tree, then the family heritage, and lastly, the family practice. First, the family tree. And here's the big idea here. 
God causes us um, to receive a new birth that brings us into God's family, and so now we belong to God's family tree. Now, we're all familiar with family trees, right? Maybe some of you have done the Ancestry.com thing where they get your DNA and all that. Um, and an, uh, with a, a family tree, you go back as far as you can and find an ancestor, and you start drawing a tree with a trunk, and then you then you get various branches, which are the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren, until you get to yourself, a little twig, a little branch. Now, what we see in our passage is that God has a family, and this family has a tree. Verse Verses 1 and 2, John calls the Christians in these churches, he calls them children of God. What a beautiful thing. In verse 29, he says that they are born of him. And twice in, in verse 9, John refers to Christians as those who have been born of God. Now, the image we should have in our mind is not that all human beings are naturally born into this tree of God. It's more like this. It's more like we're all little twigs living our lives apart from Christ. And then God sends his son Christ to come and to take us and to graft us into God's family tree. Which leads to this important point. All who belong to God's family tree are there by a miracle of God's grace. It is rooted in God's love. Look again at verse 1 in our passage. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? Exclamation point, exclamation point. When you read the commentaries on this verse, they're all pretty much in agreement that the language John is using here in this phrase, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, it's a language of astonishment. It's the language of awe. John wants his readers to see that coming into the family of God is an awesome, overwhelming, astounding work that flows from the love of God towards sinners like you and me. Christian, understand this. You are not in God's family because you're better looking than others. A little bit smarter, a little more moral, or righteous, or just an all-around better person than somebody else who isn't in God's family. The stark reality is there's people who don't believe in Christ who can make our lives look um, pale in comparison to the things they do. But no, you've been brought into God's family because God, in his love, has determined to love you into his family despite your sin. And perhaps the most important point for us this morning is this, that the way into the family tree is itself a tree. The law of Moses in the Old Testament states this, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And guess what? Jesus was hanged on a tree. That's what the cross was and is, a tree into which his hands and feet were nailed, a tree up upon which the sinless, pure, righteous Son of God died. So those who look to the cross, who look to that tree and see their sins upon Christ, they, they are the children of righteousness. They are the children of God. Entrance into the, into the kingdom is by a tree. And I'd like to contend that this is a tree of righteousness. See, what did Jesus do on the cross? On the cross, Jesus took all of our unrighteousness upon himself. But listen, it doesn't end there. After cleansing us from our sin, he does what? He gives us what? 
He gives us his righteousness. We often lose sight of that. We often focus on the one and not the other. That is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he writes, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Christian, not only is your sin taken from you by Christ upon the tree, but amazingly, his perfect righteous record is given to you and me. It's amazing, right? Oh, that we would just ponder that and take that in and press that deep into our souls. Would that not, would that not change us? It's meant to. God wants us to know this about what he's done for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, we, should be called children of God, and so we are. That's the family tree, now for the family heritage. Now, what is a heritage? If you look it up in the dictionary, a heritage is something that comes to or belongs to someone by reason of birth, like a birthright, something reserved for someone who belongs to a particular family. Now, if you're born into the royal family, you would be part of what? The royal heritage that belongs to the royal family tree. And from the time you were a child, your parents, the king and the queen, they would be forever reminding you of who you are now and who you will one day be. You are now a future king or queen. You will one day sit upon the throne, but for now you will be developed into a person worthy of sitting upon the throne. My friends, the gospel gives us a heritage. We see this in verse 2. Listen to what John writes. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, that's Jesus, when he appears, he's coming back a second time, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christian, wrap your head around this. Your heritage is to one day be fully like Christ. This should mesmerize you. This should cause great joy in your soul. And, and in what manner will we be like him? Will we be perfect in wisdom? Will we be powerful? Will we be able to walk through walls? That it appears Jesus was able to walk through walls after his resurrection. All those are true of Christ now, but they're not the main thing. No, John writes in verse 3 that Jesus is pure, and so we will be pure. Verse 3, we read, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, your heritage is that one day you will be pure and righteous like Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. In God's sight, you are already pure and righteous, but try to reason this through. This is because Christ continues in heaven to make intercession for us. But listen, Christian, there's a day coming when you will no longer continually depend upon the intercession of Christ to present you in God's presence as pure and righteous. There's a day coming when you will be pure and righteous, and it will feel so good. The hope that we've been given is that one day we'll be born a third time. 
into our God-given eternal bodies, glorious and good. On an earth that's restored and glorious and good, it will not be boring. Trust me. Imagine the best day of your life here on earth times a million, okay? Let us not lose sight of that. That is why Paul or John says early in this letter that, that, that we're not to love this world and the things in this world, the desires of the flesh. John tells us that when Christ returns in glory and restores this world in heavenly perfection, he says, we shall be like him. Beautiful divinity in a glorious body. God is so gracious and good. We don't deserve that. Jesus is saying, all that I am in perfection and glory, all the joy that I have is going to be yours. I want you to share in what I have. Christian, this is the hope that we have together. Try to wrap your little brain around this promise of God. If you are in Christ today, then one day you will be fully and forever like Christ. Imagine being in a new physical body with a completely sanctified soul. It'll be you, yeah, but with all the baggage, (laughs) without all the fallenness. Christian, you will be incapable of sinning, and no one around you will be capable of sinning ever again. Ponder that. So much of our lives are spent bickering and complaining about things that have been done wrong to us, right? Gosh, that day will be done with. Christian, you will be incapable of sinning ever again. Ponder that. This is our heritage. It's our family heritage. Perfect righteousness and purity. That is the banner over our lives. And so this is John's point. Try to picture it this way. What if you were born into the famous football family? You know I'm talking about the Mannings, right? Every little Manning baby boy is born into the family heritage of football. Not just football, but quarterback on the football team. Grandfather Archie had three quarterback sons, Cooper and Peyton and Eli. Some of you don't know Cooper. He was a great quarterback. He's the older brother. He had a medical condition. He had to retire earlier, early, but guess what? He has a son. And guess what sport he excels in? Yep, football. Guess what position he plays? Yep, quarterback. Is he any good? Yep. He is the number one ranked high school quarterback for his age. Every school wants him. See, when you're born a Manning, your family heritage is a football quarterback. And so Manning boys are raised hearing their dad say, you are a Manning now, but what you are going to be is not yet fully appeared, but you will be a fantastic quarterback. Now, therefore, since this is your hope, put into practice now all that great quarterbacks possess. That is what John is saying. Christian, this is your heritage, righteousness. This is who you are as God's child. And this is where God is taking you. So put into practice that which you're becoming And just as you would never expect, think this through, you never expect a Manning boy to wait until they're 18 years old to pick up a football. (laughs) 
so too it's just as out of place for Christians who will one day be perfect in righteousness to wait until Christ appears to begin practicing righteousness. Does this make sense? And does it challenge you? Are there areas of sin in your life that you've settled in with, you've become comfortable with? Maybe it's an anger issue or a pride issue. He's just not taking it serious. My friends, the more and more we mature as Christians, the more we realize our greatest need and therefore our greatest desire really is righteousness. The children of God know that we are God's children now, and we know that we, what we will one day be has what? Not yet appeared. And so we place our hope. There's this future grace that, that God has on our behalf waiting for us. This future hope changes us in the present, and we become those who anchor our hope in who God will one day make us to be, pure and perfect in Christ-like righteousness. My friends, a child of God has this hope. Has this hope captivated you? So we looked at the family tree and the family heritage. Now for the family practice. You know, today very few people go into the family business, right? It used to not be that way. We got a father who's got a family business pass along to his son. But um, it used to not used to not be that that way. It used to be if your last name was Smith, your dad was what? He was a blacksmith. And someday you too would be a blacksmith. If your name was Baker, guess what? Your dad was what? He was a baker. And someday you too would be a baker. Now, the family of God has a family practice, so to speak. The children of God are all caught up in it. And what is it? We've been talking about all morning. It is righteousness. That is our family practice. And so just as a blacksmith's hands are black with soot and a baker's hair is dusted with flour, so too a child of God becomes covered with righteousness. You would never expect an attorney who practices law to practice injustice. You would never expect a doctor who practices medicine to practice the taking of a life. Likewise, you would never expect one who has been born of God to practice unrighteousness. Look at verse 29. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Listen, those who have this new birth, they're born of Christ, they practice righteousness. Now, let's be careful not to get the cart before the horse, so to speak. You might be tempted to think that, that if you that, that if you first practice righteousness, then God will make you and, and accept you into his family. But it's the opposite that's true. Listen, because we are born of God, that this grace has come to us, we will now be practicers of righteousness. See, you don't do what's, what's right so that you earn acceptance into God's family. A lot of people think that's what Christianity is about. Go do all these rules and then God will like you and welcome you in, but you better keep doing them right, right? That that's what Christianity is. It's not. No, rather, because God has already accepted you into his family, there's this grace that's come to you. You take on the family practice. Now, another way we can get John's words wrong 
is if we think that somehow Christians no longer sin. I've, I've talked to people who profess to be Christians who say such things. The, this is how some people interpret this. They point to verse 6 and they say where it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. But John is not saying that Christians no longer sin. We know we do, right? Earlier in his letter, in, first, in the chapter 1, we, he said if we say we don't sin, we're liars, and the truth isn't in us. But we also know this from the grammar in verses 4 through 10. The verbs are in the present continuous tense. The present continuous denotes a continual pattern or direction or just the habit of one's life. And when John says that the Christian does not keep on sinning, or when he says the Christian does not make a practice of sinning, but rather practices righteousness. The verb tense tells us that, that something is actually changed inside within the Christian. And so now, you know this, right? As Christians, we what? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you were to look inside the heart of a Christian, you would see a compass with an arrow pointed towards righteousness. Yes, we get off track sometimes, but our compass is pointed to righteousness. If it's not, then you're not a child of God. And when we do sin, and sadly we do sin, we lament our sin. Yeah, it might take us a while for us to realize. We might want to begin with shifting blame, but then eventually we see, no, I own that. And so we lament our sin. But the point is this. We don't actively practice sin. We don't rejoice in it. We don't celebrate it. We want to be fruitful in righteousness. Christian, do you see this in your life right now? You long to practice righteousness. It's the sign that you are God's child now. Now, John doesn't just remind us that we are to practice righteousness. He wants to make sure that we know how to pursue righteousness. And this is really, really important, my friends. So if you've been tuning me out so far, this is where you need to jump back in. Because you see, all Christians know that we are to practice righteousness. Where we fall short is how we pursue righteousness. And so it's critically important that we understand how God wants us to pursue righteousness. See, when we pursue righteousness in the wrong manner, we end up failing in one of two ways. We either become self-righteous, which is oh so ugly, or we become, become self-defeated which is also so sad to see. But listen, both of these result from a false pursuit of righteousness. It flows from a false understanding that though one is saved by grace, the rest of the Christian life is like a treadmill life. It's a work to be accomplished. And so many Christians look at all the spiritual disciplines for us to embrace good things like Bible reading and prayer and do daily devotionals and church attendance and tithing and serving on a team. And they base their relationship with God upon how well they do these things. Have a good day, you feel like you're a good Christian. Have a bad day, well, you feel beat up. Now, I'm not saying these aren't good things. They are. But when we look to these good things that Christians do, and we determine that in order to be good Christians, we have to do this and that and this and that, so that we'd be good Christians in God's sight. Listen, we stop living out the gospel, and we will fail to be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. 
and we will become self-righteous or we will become self-defeated and sometimes, you guessed it, both. We become self-righteous when we look at the so-called Christian things we do and we feel good about what we have accomplished. I know my Bible. I tithe. I pray. And it'll puff you up. You know you're living this way by how you judge other Christians or other churches. But here's the problem. Think this through. You don't think you're judging them. You're just giving an accurate assessment. <laughs> and so you mistakenly think you're fine when really you're living like a Pharisee. Now, self-righteousness is a danger to which we're all prone, are we not? when we pursue righteousness apart from God's way. The other outcome is self-defeat. And understand this, so many Christians suffer from this. They look at all these Christian duties, and they've tried, and they have tried, but they just cannot seem to be good Christians who read their Bibles every day or pray and tithe. They see other Christians who seem to have it all figured out, and they think, I just don't have it in me. Whatever it takes, I just don't have it. And so they feel defeated. They feel looked down upon. And guess what? They probably are being looked down upon. And guess what? They often withdraw from the body of Christ, the place they need to be. Both self-righteousness and self-defeat are sad outcomes of pursuing righteousness wrongly. So then what is the proper means? How are we to pursue righteousness? It's in our text. It's in the word, abide. Verse 28, and now little children, here it is, abide in him. And then in verse, not, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Then verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. This is the very same word that Jesus spoke to John about 40 years earlier and to the other disciples on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was trying to comfort them. He was telling them, yes, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave this earth, but, but he will not leave his people as orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. You can read all this in John's gospel. Um, and, and he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in God's children. And because the Spirit of Christ was coming into the people of Christ, they would be able to abide in Christ. Christ would not leave them. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch, this is Christians, that does bear fruit, what does he do to us? He prunes us that it may bear more fruit. Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You've been made righteous. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Oaks of righteousness are attached to who? Christ the righteous one. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The things I have spoken to you, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and listen, and that your joy may be full. Jesus knows us well, doesn't he? He knows our tendency is to take something good like righteousness and run off by ourselves and try in our own strength to be righteous. But what Jesus knows and what John is telling us is that our hope in the Christian life is only found by drawing near to Christ and never leaving him. Listen, we not only need Jesus on the day on which he saved us, but every day. He alone can sanctify us. When you and I insist on living our lives apart from abiding in Christ, we are doomed to fail. We will bristle with self-righteousness or we will languish in self-defeat. And sadly, we will miss out on something. What is it? It's joy. Consider this truth. You can know you're living self-righteously or self-defeatedly by this litmus test. Ask yourself, am I joyful? Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Christian, let me ask you, are you joyful? Joy is a litmus test to know if, if we are abiding in Christ or in our own wisdom and power. The self-righteous lack joy, as do the self-defeated. But those who live an abiding life in Christ, they are joyful. It cannot be otherwise. When your eyes are fixed upon Christ and what he is doing in you, then you're joyful, even if you're battling the greatest sin of your life. And it's when we abide in Christ that Jack Miller's famous line is true for us, right? Cheer up. You are far more sinful than you ever dared imagine, and yet far more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than you ever hoped or dreamed, both simultaneously. See, when we abide in Christ, we are set free to address our sin. In fact, we want it uncovered. We no longer need to hide behind the veneer of self-righteousness or hide in our self-defeat. Listen, there is no safer place to be real and honest than in the presence of Christ, who says to us all, come and abide in me as I abide in you. As we wrap up, try to imagine your life now, this newborn life that you have, is that of a beautiful monarch butterfly. Just as a monarch butterfly is no longer content to walk on its little legs and eat bitter green leaves like the caterpillar it once was, but now he flies through the air and feasts on sweet nectar with great joy. So too the Christian has experienced a new birth transformation. We have tasted that God is good and we now hunger and thirst for righteousness. Grace Presbyterian Church, God has made us to be 
oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Righteousness, this is our family tree, it's our family heritage, and it's our family practice. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, what kind of love is this that you have lavished upon us? We are so unworthy, and yet in Christ we have been made so worthy. May this grace penetrate our lives. May it cause us to rejoice in this hope that we have. May we see that righteousness is good. It's what this world needs. No one can tell us otherwise. We have a righteous Father and Savior and family. Help us to pursue righteousness in the way you want us to, by abiding in our Savior who gives us righteousness, not just on the day we were saved, but each and every day, including today. Amen.